following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of His people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. Again, our scripture reading this morning, John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. These are the words of the Lord. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glory myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Amen. You may be seated. How are we doing? Amen. Last week, we talked a little bit about um, We quoted John Calvin, the Institutes of Christian Religion. And in the Institutes of Christian Religion, John Calvin talked about knowledge of self and knowledge of self beginning with first knowledge of God. We talked about that this first, this, the, the, the first bit of this passage, we're working through 20 verses. We've split it up into two weeks. And we talked about the first half of this passage being more a discussion about who were the people that were bringing uh, these concerns to Jesus. And, and, and that in, in Jesus disclosing himself to them, they were learning just as much about themselves as they was learning about him. And the one thing that they learned about themselves as we closed last week is that they were not, in fact, children of God, which is a very harsh thing to say, but Jesus said it, if you recall that they were not children of God. And, and even though their, their, their ethnicity might have been correct, they were in fact Jewish people. And even though their, their God, even the God that they claimed to serve might have been correct, the, 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 God, the God whose name is Yahweh, whose name is I am that I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, they had that right, they had the ethnicity right. That even still with all of that, Jesus said, because you've rejected me, the one who has come in his name, because you've rejected me, the only son of God, you in fact are not his children. You are not even Abraham's children, even though you have his ethnicity. You are the children of the devil. That is harsh language. 
Somebody on the street would say them fighting words, right? So these guys are not really excited about Jesus, and they're not really excited about anything he has to say at this point. And so they respond to his accusation, which is a truthful accusation. After all, it's Jesus. But they respond to it with, with, with harsh words, right? They, they respond by saying, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Samaritan and demon. Jesus responds, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, you dishonor me. Are we not right in saying that you have the devil in you? You're talking about we're children of the devil? Well, no, you have the devil in you, which is why you would say such a crazy thing to us. See, left with very little response to Jesus' declarations, the, what, what ends up happening, that, or the declaration that they are, in fact, spawns of Satan, what's, what, what ends up happening is they, they reach as low as they can go in bringing condemnation to Christ, right? When you're left with nothing else to say, you go as low as you can possibly go, and they say, you got a devil, and you're a Samaritan, Right? Like, your mama ugly, and your daddy is too, right? I mean, it's, it's like, let's, let's go as deep as we possibly can go, because this guy has really hit us where it hurts. We are not, we are not at all pleased with this conversation. So not only are you a, 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 a demon-possessed man, but you're also a Samaritan. Samaritans, and, you, and, you, and if you've been working with us through this series, and you've been just working with us through sermons that we've preached in the past, then you know we've talked about the history of Israel or Jerusalem or the Jews versus the Samaritans. And we've talked about that the Jewish people do not take the Samaritans too kindly because the Samaritans are, in fact, what would be considered a mixed race, a mixed Breathe. They were, uh, when, when, when Jerusalem was in captivity and, and Babylon and, and, and those engaged there began to intermingle with Jewish people, what was created was Samaritan people. And so not only did they intermingle in terms of DNA, but they also intermingled in terms of religious practice, right? And so they brought some of their pagan, their pagan rituals along with them, and thus they, the Samaritans were a despised group. Right? Not only did they, not only was their, their, their race considered quote unquote impure by the Jewish people, but their religion was considered quote unquote impure. And so they were despised people, so despised, we've talked about this in the past, that if you were a Jew on your way to a place that required you to go through Samaria or Samaria, that you would actually go the long way around. Does that make sense? Anybody tracking with that? That you would not go through the city. Like if somebody said, hey, let's go to Meridian, you would literally say, okay, well, we got to go up 61, we got to go up 61 north, and, and once we get up high enough, we'll cross that way, that, uh, we'll cross through Yazoo possibly, that way we don't have to go through Jackson. That's how despised the people were. And so what they're, what they're reverting to is they're, they're giving Jesus the harshest possible put down that they can give him. You have the devil in you and you're Samaritan. What's interesting about Jesus is that he responds and says, I do not have a demon, but he doesn't say, I'm not a Samaritan. 
And I love the fact that Jesus decides to love those people that way, right? Because he's not a Samaritan. He could say, I don't have a demon and I'm not a Samaritan. But the point is, is that they're, they're using Samaritan as a pejorative. And he doesn't go there with them, right? Because the Samaritans have dignity and have worth that is affirmed in Christ, right? They are valuable to him. And so he doesn't even entertain the pejorative that they try to use. But he does say, I don't have a demon. You know, this is kind of like, for, for, for me, this is like Twitter wars, right? You ever, you, ever, you ever been on Twitter and you see someone who gives, you know, who, who, who they're in this heated battle and, and before you know it, they, they resort to pejoratives and they resort to harsh attacks towards each, uh, each other when they start disagreeing? You know, for example, you hear, you know, someone, you know, yell out, uh, social justice warrior liberal. And you're like, wait a minute, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm a registered Republican. How'd you come up with that? You know what I mean? Or, or, you, or you hear people shouting out, you know, bigoted racist. And I'm like, dude, I marched with Dr. King. What are you talking about? You know what I mean? They, they resort to as harsh, as, as harsh of a criticism that they possibly can when the disagreements begin to flare up. But another thing that you see happening here is that they resort to harsh attacks as a way to undermine the witness of Jesus. They don't just resort to harsh attacks because they've run out of things to say. They resort to harsh attacks in order to undermine him. Since the best way to undermine the messenger of truth is to tie him to those who spark hatred in the hearts of listeners. You see this on the streets when, 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 when African Americans are, are, are trying to renounce the gospel um, or trying to, trying to dispel the gospel with other African Americans. What they will say is that they will say, your, your religion is the white man's slave religion, right? It's like, oh man, slave religion? You know, it's like, let's go as hard as we can go and let's hit it where it hurts so that we can undermine the message itself. And so, your religion is a slave religion. It's like the lowest of put downs for an African American to hear. Does that make sense? And it's not just simply to put down because I don't have anything to give you, but it's to put down in order to undermine the message. You have a demon in you and you're a Sumerian or Samaritan. Why? To undermine the message that he's given. But there's another thing that's happening here. And one, one of the things that's happening here or, 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 or that thing that's happening here um, I heard Scott Sauls talk about it on a recent episode of, the, uh, of, of a leadership podcast that I listen to from time to time. Um, and Scott Sauls is a pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church over in Nashville, Tennessee. And he says, way too many of us thinking way too highly of ourselves and way too little of people who we might be able to learn something from if we, are, if we were willing to listen rather than throw stones. That's what's happening. This group of people think way too highly of themselves. And so they aren't listening to the truth that Jesus is proclaiming. You ever been there? You ever been there? Where, where, you, where you are so sure of your truth that when someone else gives you something that in fact may be true if you would give ear to it, not only do you dispel it, not only do you dismiss it, but you ridicule. Are you tracking with that? And you mock as you dispel and dismiss. This is in some ways how the culture attacks Jesus all the time. If Jesus comes after the culture's sexual ethics, for example, if he calls out sex before marriage as sinful or same-sex acts as sinful, or if he calls for the kind of sexual ethic that cuts against the cultural norms, then the wave of attacks are sure to follow, aren't they? Your Jesus is a prude. 
they'll say, or your Jesus is lame, or your Jesus is outdated, or your Jesus is unloving. If Jesus comes after the culture's money ethics, the way that we use and the way that we spend our money, causing us to give more freely um, or, or to work more diligently to earn our own and to, and to look to share when we earn that which we've been given, or to not be so bound by our work and to not be so bound in our work that our time and our energy becomes consumed with, with earning more of it. If, if Jesus begins to call that out in his word, then we, then we find ourselves throwing mocking attacks at him. Your Jesus is a socialist. Your, your Jesus is a capitalist. Your, your Jesus is a legalist even, right? We, we tend to mock and throw harsh terms out whenever Jesus is not agreeing with our truth. The answer to our confrontations with Jesus is not attacks, though. Jesus is not your enemy. The answer to the confrontations that we have with Christ is humility, humbleness, as we hear the words that he's sharing, even if those words do not jive with your sensibility or my sensibility. The answer is careful attention to his words, focus on his words. The answer is ultimately obedience to his words. If we change our approach to how we receive his tough words, in reality, what we'll find is that those tough words are not there to hurt us. Those tough words are actually there to bring us life. Does that make sense? I can count, I can't count rather, how many times that I found myself reluctant to obey the word of God only until the end result is revealed. And then I find myself saying, I'm glad that I listened to you. Are you tracking with that? Tim Keller once said the following about Jesus and, and, and obeying Jesus in his words. He says, to stay away from Christianity because part of the Bible's teaching is offensive to you assumes that if there is a God, he wouldn't have any views that upset you. Does that belief make sense? He goes on in the same chapter of his book, Reason for God, The Reason for God. And he says this in chapter 7. If you don't trust the Bible enough to let it challenge and correct your thinking... How could you ever have had, or how could you ever have a personal relationship with God? In any truly personal relationship, the other person has to be able to contradict you. For example, if a wife is not allowed to contradict her husband, they won't have an intimate relationship. He continues, remember the, remember the movie Stepford Wives? The husbands of Stepford, Connecticut decided to have their wives turn into robots who never crossed the wheels of their husbands. A Stepford wife was wonderfully compliant and beautiful, but no one would describe such a marriage as intimate or personal. Now, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a Stepford God, a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction with. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle as in a real friendship or marriage will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination? So an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It is the pre precondition for it, end quote. Did you hear that? 
that if you don't that that if you don't have a God whom with you disagree with, that if you don't have a God whom sometimes will outrage you on what he says, that if you don't have a God whom whom you hear, you hear his commandments and then you say that is tough and you struggle with that, then the God is of your own making. If you have a God who only communicates the things that you like, then guess what? You are that God. So it only makes sense that God's truth would butt up against our truth from time to time. Jesus is not our enemy. But he goes on and he says in verse 50, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And so on the contrary, when we hear him, if we respond humbly and we respond with obedience and we, and we respond with, with direct and laser-like focus into the things that he's saying, what we will find is that he won't lead us into a ditch, but rather he'll lead us into the rivers of life. Does that make sense? If we would humble ourselves enough to hear from him, what we will find is that there is life in his words. John 5 says, Jesus says in John 5, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. If you hear the words of Jesus and you don't reject them, if you hear the words of Jesus and you don't mock them, if you hear the words of Jesus and you embrace them, it is not pain that you will find. It is not hurt that you will find. It's life that you will find. It's joy that you will find. Are you tracking with that? Yeah, it seems countercultural, the things that he says. Of course they do. Of course they do. Why would Jesus' words be consistent with a finite culture? It seems countercultural. Of course it is. Why would Jesus' words, why would a perfect God's words be consistent with an imperfect culture? Why would the God of the universe's words be always consistent with mere earthlings? It's supposed to be inconsistent. The question that you have to ask yourself as you are hearing those words and responding to those words, whether negatively or positively, the question that you must ask is whose words will you savor the most, the finite or the infinite, the earthling or the universal? I know whose words I'm taking. But not only does his words bring life, Jesus is the one who brings life through his words. Jesus is the one who is not your enemy, right? But he is, in fact, even though his words can be harsh sometimes, even though his words can can sometimes rock our sensibilities, they are life-giving words. But Jesus is also the one whom the Father glorifies. And so the Father validates his words. Does that make sense? In John chapter, John chapter 8, this same passage, uh, this same passage, verse 54, he says, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I know him. I do know him, and I keep his word. 
Your father rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so what Jesus says is, listen, if it was just me here affirming this, then maybe there would be some room for suspicion. But with the father affirming the things that I've said, it gives you all the more grounds to trust what I've said. Does it make sense? If you, are, if you are a Sunday school attendee when you were a kid, or maybe you went to vacation Bible school, then maybe you heard the story in the Gospels when Jesus was first baptized. When Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, the Bible says that the Spirit of God descended like a dove from heaven and fell upon him. But there was also another thing that was said. The Bible also says that the Father from heaven spoke from the clouds to the people gathered, and he said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. You may have heard of another story in the gospel if you were a Sunday school attendee or a vacation Bible school attendee or if you've read through the gospels before. And that was a moment in which, in which Jesus was, was taking some of his disciples to, to a mount, right? And at the top of this mount, Jesus began to reveal himself in all of his beauty and all of his glory, shining so brightly that they could barely stand to see him. And the Bible says that, 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 that in that moment, along with the prophets that had gathered alongside him, that, that God spoke and said, this is my beloved son, do what he says. That God is constantly throughout the scriptures showing that he affirms and approves the words in which Jesus has spoken. He glorifies Christ, and in so glorifying Christ, he's telling you to trust him. Does that make sense? Now, what ends up happening sometimes is we say, well, Jesus is good. That's a great guy. But there's a lot of different ways to get to, there's a lot of different ways to get to, uh, to get to God. My question to you is that if God himself, God the Father, is affirming the words of Christ, and Christ is saying to you that I am the way, the truth, and the light, that no one comes to the Father but through me, then what must we take from those words? Either Christ is a lie or God is. Or we've been deceived. But we can't say that Jesus is true, right? And at the same time say, and there's a whole bunch of ways that you can get to God. Pick one, whatever one suits you. No, one of those statements is not true. Are you tracking with that? So we have to wrestle with the tension of things being hard. Does that make sense? Jesus has given us a hard statement saying, I am the one. But Jesus has also said that my words breathe life. My words bring life. So how shall we wrestle with it? We shall wrestle with it humbly. We shall wrestle with, wrestle with it with our focus and our attention directly on what he says. And we shall wrestle with it through obedience. We will obey and we will say, yes, because you are the only way I will align myself to you. I will submit to your way. I will follow you. But not only is Jesus the one who is not our enemy, and not only is Jesus the one who brings us life with his words, and not only is Jesus the one whom the Father glorifies, but Jesus is also the one whom declares he is God. So in this text, in verse 57, this is what happens. Listen, it says, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now listen, this is what happens. Jesus is talking about in verse 56 that Abraham longed to see my day. 
And what he's pointing to is, is, is when God gave Abraham, and we've talked about this several times in Genesis 12, 13, 14, and 15, in that, in that section of Scripture, when God first calls Abraham from his family and God sends Abraham into a strange land, but God also makes covenant with Abraham. And we've talked about this before, right? And in making covenant with Abraham, God says, listen, even though you are super old, that's my translation, not, not, not the Bibles, even though you are super old, and your wife is super old, I'm going to bring a nation from her womb. I'm going to bring a nation from from you, and that nation shall bless the world. That offspring that comes through you shall bless the world. But here's the curious thing. Paul says that, that instead of putting an S on offspring, Paul the apostle in his, in his letters to the church, he says instead of Abraham hearing an S, he just hears a singular offspring. And what that means is that God was pointing Abraham to Jesus and saying that through Christ, that through this long 2,000-year lineage, the Savior would come. And in, in that Savior, in that offspring, in that seed, all of the world would be blessed. How? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so when Jesus says that Abraham saw my day and longed for it, that's what he's talking about. Now, what ends up happening, of course, more insults. They're saying, wait a second. Hold on, young buck. We count you about 30, 31, 32, 33 maybe, somewhere in that neighborhood. You're, you're not that old. You're, you mean to tell me that, that you're going to bring Abraham up in this conversation? Our father, the one who set the stage for all of this, the one who set the stage, the one who God made covenant with, the one whom God built this nation through, you're going, to, you're, you're going to bring up our father and you aren't even 50 years old? And Jesus says, I sure am. And then he says, and I'll tell you why. Before Abraham was, I am. That sounds very simple. Sounds like Jesus just forgot to add a few words, right? But what Jesus is saying is so, so magnificent. And it is so full of heresy if he is not real. It is so full of heresy if he is not true. What, 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 what Jesus is saying, he's pointing back to Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, this is the second book of the Bible. Again, let's talk a little, another Sunday school lesson. Moses was a man who was, by God's sovereign hand, wound up in Egypt. And in Egypt, he was taken into the, uh, the, the, the family of Pharaoh. He rose to prominence in that family. And he had all sorts of sway in Egypt, even though in Egypt also was Moses' original family, his original people, the Jewish people, the Israelites, who were enslaved for centuries. Now, Moses ends up having a run-in with one of the Egyptians, and that pushes Moses into the wilderness. 
And Moses hangs out in the wilderness for a time before God calls him, speaking from a burning bush. And when God, speaking from a burning bush, a bush that shows no consumption or a bush that is not consumed, in other words, showing himself as a, as a, as a God that's able to produce his own power, right? Doesn't even need the power of the bush to burn. He just simply exists in it. And he says to Moses, hey, I want you to go back to, uh, go back to Egypt, and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses says, there's, a, there's some back and forth in this. I'm not sure about that guy. Maybe not the guy. Really can't talk good. And God says, hey, I'm sending Aaron with you. They go back and forth. But nevertheless, in the midst of that conversation, Moses says, okay, God, when I go back, who should I tell them sent me? And God says, Tell them I am, that I am. Tell them, in other words, when you think about I am, that I am, you should think about it in these terms. Me, if you ask me who I am, I'll say I am the son of Gene Crawford, right? I am the son of the late E.J. Crawford. Does that make sense? I have a beginning. I have an origin. I have a source. But when you ask God, who is he, He says, I am that I am. In other words, I have no source. I have no beginning. I have no origin. And so when you ask Jesus, who do you think you are, telling us that your words will give life and that the people that hear those words will not see death, well, wait a second, Abraham died, the prophets died, are you better than them? And when they say, who do you think you are, you've only been here for 30 years, three decades, Abraham lived 2,000 years ago. Jesus says, I am. And when he says, I am, he is saying that my origin has no origin. That my beginning has no beginning. That I am the source of my existence. Now, the contemporary church is, is seeking to make the teachings of Jesus or the teachings of Scripture accessible and reachable to the seeker, right? And I commend them for that. But what, what, what ends up happening when you do that sometimes is that you swing the pendulum too far. You start saying, okay, let's try to get these messages as cute as we possibly can. Let's try to package these messages in, in as small of a time as, as, as we possibly can. And so you start getting up on Sunday mornings and you say, all right, you're great, you're great, and you're great. Everybody good? Amen. Let's go home. Praise God. And, and so what ends up happening when that, when that happens in the church is the pendulum swings too far in the other direction, and, and we have left the people of God susceptible to Google and YouTube scholarship. And what I mean by that is that people come along, they watch a few YouTube videos, and before you know it, they say, hey, Jesus never said he was God. What are you talking about? Or they say, Did you know that the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325 actually created the Christian faith? Yeah, Constantine created it. The emperor, the Roman emperor, he created it. You say, how did you know that? Well, Dan Brown, the author of Da Vinci Code, told me. You know, I was watching the movie Da Vinci Code, and it's so compelling. You should watch it sometimes because they show you how Christianity was created. And they show you that Jesus was just a good teacher, that Jesus never claimed to be God. And so when we're not taking truth seriously, does that make sense? And we're not helping the church wrestle with these things, 
Then Google scholarship and YouTube scholarship comes along, sweeps us up, and the next thing you know, you have an atheist on your hands that says, I don't believe, God, believe in God because I saw Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code or because I read his book. Dan Brown, by the way, not to bang on Dan Brown, he, I'm sure he's a great guy. I've never met him, but I'm sure he's a great guy. But he repopularized, repopularized the idea that Jesus nor any of his early disciples ever considered him to be divine. That, that, that Jesus didn't see himself as God and his followers didn't see himself as God either. According to Dan Brown, the idea that Jesus is God did not gain any steam until AD 325 at this particular council of Nicaea when this group of bishops got together and decided that Jesus is God. And many people have been swept up in those speculations that Dan has made. Many people have, have taken those speculations and through those speculations, the, their faith, their Christian faith has been undermined. Some have allowed those speculations to cripple them or destroy their faith. Some have allowed or some have used those speculations to attack the faith. For example, you will hear this argument used over and over again by many of the folks in the same community I was talking about earlier, the black conscious community that says you're worshiping a white man's God, you're worshiping a slave master's God. They'll use this argument as well and say Christianity wasn't even created until 325 with Constantine in Rome. And they use that as a weapon of power to dominate black and brown people. Let me say this. Christianity has been wielded wrongly through the centuries and allowed to be used as a weapon of oppression. Let me say that clearly. So agree with that, okay? It has been used from time to time. But as far as it being a Roman invention, no. Here's the problem with Dan Brown's claim. And I'm going to try to break this thing down in, 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 in as, as succinctly as I can. He's wrong. He's wrong. He's, he's completely wrong. Dan Brown says that the Emperor Constantine, I'm quoting from a historian by the name of C. John Somerville, Dan Brown says that the Emperor Constantine imposed a whole new interpretation on Christianity at the Council of Nicaea. That is, he decreed the belief in Jesus' divinity and suppressed all evidence of his humanity. This would mean Christianity won the religious competition in Rome by an exercise of power rather than by any attraction it exerted. But in actual historical fact, the church had won that competition long before that time, before it had any power, when it was still under sporadic persecution. See, by the year 325, the Council of Nicaea, the supposed year Christianity was started, Christianity and the claims that Jesus Christ was in fact God had already entered Rome. They had been viciously persecuted. They had seen itself, that Christianity had seen itself spread virally throughout the entire empire despite that persecution and had that persecution brought to an end through an edict that was written in 313, actually 12 years before Christianity was supposedly created. All of that had happened before 325. But not only did all of that happen, Jesus himself claimed he was God, despite what Dan Brown may say. The words spoken by Jesus in verse 58 have a very specific intention, to say that I am God. And if you don't believe Jesus, believe the guys in verse 59 who take up rocks to stone him. Does that make sense? They ain't stoning him because he just said some things they didn't like. You have to remember, he just called them children of the devil. That was plenty. 
if they wanted to stone him because they didn't like what he said, they would have picked him up right then. The reason they picked him up was because in their mind, he had taken this thing too far, and he was laying claim to a place that only God should seek. Does that make sense? Everyone surrounding Jesus in that moment knew that he was referring to Exodus chapter 3. Everyone. So Jesus himself claimed that he was God. The apostles claimed that he was God. The people that followed Jesus claimed that he was God. Paul says in Colossians that he is the image of the invisible God and that through him all things are created, that by him all things are made, and that without him nothing exists that exists. Is that a good guy or is that God that Paul is talking about? It's God. The apostle Thomas, when he saw Jesus in his resurrected state, he said, my Lord and my God, not my Lord and my homeboy, not my Lord and my good dude, my Lord and my God. But not only did the apostles say he was God, but the church fathers before the fourth century said that he was God. In the early 2nd century, for example, you have the church father by the name of Ignatius who writes to the Ephesian church, and he says, For our God, Jesus Christ, was conceived in the womb by Mary according to a dispensation of the seed of David, but also of the Holy Ghost. And he was born and was baptized that by his passion he might cleanse water. In, In his epistle to the Romans, Ignatius writes, For our God, Jesus Christ, do you hear that? That's literally, literally just a couple of decades after Jesus died. In the early 3rd century, 200, 200 A.D. plus, the, the African church fathers by the name of Tertullian and Origen wrote, For God alone is without sin, and the only man without sin is Christ, since Christ is also our God. A hundred years before the Council of Nicaea. Another African church father by the name of Origen wrote, Jesus Christ in the last times, divesting himself of his glory, became a man and was incarnate, although God. And while made a man, remained the God which he was. God. The apostles believed it. Jesus believed it. The church fathers believed it. And by the time you get to 325, what actually happens is that there is an African church father by the name of um, Athanasius, and they called him the Black Dwarf, right? So he was dark, apparently, and short. But Athanasius is going to the Council of Nicaea to combat the heresy that began to surface that said Jesus was not God. Do you understand? And so the council was gathered not to make Christianity up. The council was gathered to affirm the Christianity that had already been established for centuries before the council was ever established. Does that make sense? Jesus says that I am. So Jesus' words bring life, but they bring life only because they are coming from the God who's able to give it. If he's just a good dude, you don't have to accept his words. They have no power. You embrace his words because they are coming from the very God who gives life. As we close this morning, I want to ask you, have you allowed the I am to change who you are? 
Have you allowed the I am to change who you are? If not, then when? See, if Jesus is who he declares to be, then the question no longer remains that his words are true or are his words true. And if it is no longer up for debate that his words are true, then it, is no longer, it no longer remains a question as to whether or not they will give you life, and not just life for this life, but life for eternity. See, if he is who he is, then his words are, who, uh, words are true. And if his words are true, then you receive life when you embrace them, meaning that when he says that anyone that comes to me shall be given eternal life, you coming to him by faith will, in fact, give you that. The only question now becomes, when will you trust him? When will you stop rejecting him? When will you start embracing him? When will you embrace him as I am? Will you embrace him as you contemplate his death? It was his death that brought the power conveyed on that day in, in such a way that it caused the earth to literally quake. It was, the, it was, the, it was his death on that day that brought power so, so, unbelievable, so unbelievable and so magnificent that the temple, the Jerusalem temple's curtain was torn in half. It was his death that spoke so powerfully to the soldier that was gathered to watch and keep watch over his body that that soldier and those that were along with him after seeing what had taken place on that day said, filled with wonder and awe in their souls, truly this was the Son of God. So will you make him who he is? Will you embrace him rather for who he is as you contemplate his death? Maybe it's his resurrection as you think on his resurrection. After all, it was the resurrection that Paul said had over 500 credible witnesses of which many are alive today or many were alive in that day so that they were there to call Paul a liar if they wanted to. Does that make sense? It was the resurrection that turned men who stood as deserting cowards on the night, on the morning that Jesus died, or on the afternoon that Jesus died, and yet... After the resurrection, they were literally willing to dedicate and ultimately sacrifice their life to tell the world that he was indeed the great I am. Something happened that took cowards from men and transformed them into mighty witnesses. It was the resurrection that prompted Thomas, as we discussed earlier, to declare that Jesus was the great I am when he saw his crucifixion wound. And, he, and it prompted, those wounds prompted him to cry out, my Lord and my God. Or lastly, maybe you'll embrace him as I am when he meets you head on. Maybe he's met you head on. Maybe he's met you in a moment where you knew you were supposed to die. You fell asleep on the road. And you knew you were out for at least five to ten seconds, and yet you're still here. Maybe he's met you through the mother or through the father or through both that have been relentlessly praying for you since you were a small child, asking that the Lord would keep you, but asking that the Lord would bring you to himself. Maybe he's met you that way. Maybe he's met you through a friend who's bringing you to a hearing of the gospel. Maybe, he, maybe he's met you through a friend who's been sharing the gospel with you. He met Paul. 
in a unique way. Acts chapter 9, it tells us that on the road to Damascus, Paul saw Jesus. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. When will you embrace him as I am? When will you embrace his words as life-giving? It's when we embrace that that we genuinely and truly for once in our life, find life. Let's pray. God, we love you and thank you. We give you the praise and the glory and honor for your goodness, your mercy, your love and compassion towards us. We ask, Lord God, that you would continue to make yourself known to us in the multitude of ways that you do it. For those that know you, Lord God, would you keep them? Would you strengthen them on the journey, Lord God, as they, as the, as the flesh rages in their, and within them, Lord God, and as the world tempts them and tries to draw them, as Satan seeks to throw his fiery arrows, Lord God, would you protect and keep and by your spirit strengthen and give joy that no man can take, give hope that no man can steal. Father, for those that don't know you, Lord God, I pray that as this message has been heard and I pray it was also received, that it was stored in the hearts of men and women, that, Father, they may respond, Lord God, to your gospel through faith and repentance, Lord God, through faith, trusting you as Lord and Savior, and through repentance, turning from the old ways, turning from the old life, turning towards the new life the richer life, the more abundant life. Father, we thank you that you have given us your son. We thank you that your son is the great I am. May our lives and our hearts reflect that in everything that we do and say. These things we ask and pray in your name. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.